From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. I just wanted to create something that looked approachable and familiar, but had Indian flavors and, again, would take me back to my childhood and hopefully any, you know, first-generation Indian American to, yeah. like, a moment in their childhood. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks, and you're tuning in today for day five, the final day of our baking week in 2019, and you just heard from today's guest, Hetel Vasavada. Now, Hetel is the voice behind the blog Milk and Cardamom, and she gained a wider following after appearing on season six of Master Chef. She's known for layering traditional Indian flavors with classic American desserts, and her debut cookbook, Milk and Cardamom, Spectacular Cakes, Custards, and More, inspired by the flavors of India, features dozens of these delectable creations. Think recipes like a pomegranate curd brownie, or almond cardamom brittle, or a rose and pistachio cake with Swiss meringue buttercream. In today's show, we'll talk with Hetel about the role food played in her life growing up, about how Master Chef influenced her career trajectory, and how she approaches recipe development. Plus, later in the show, we're joined by cookbook author James Rich to discuss his book, Apple, Recipes from the Orchard. All of that today on Baking Week at Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Hetel Vasavada joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Hetel. How are you? How are you? Great. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you for having me. Yes, we're thrilled to have you. And we're here to talk about your cookbook, Milk and Cardamom. Mm -hmm. But as with all of our guests, we like to sort of start at the beginning and learn a little bit more about your life and what brought you to food and what brought you to cookbook writing. So let's go back then. I think you you grew up in New Jersey. Is that right? Yes. In like deep Italian North New Jersey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like suburban New Jersey. Yep. <laughs> okay. Um, and you're, you're first generation Indian American. Um, and what role did food play in your life when you were growing up? Growing up, um, I come from a family that's have a farming background. So food okay. is very important. Having good food was super important. I like talk about this quite a lot. Like my parents couldn't afford like Nikes or, you know, Calvin oh. Klein or the, like the very expensive giant, like clothing, but I always had a good fresh cooked meal every single day. Sure. I also grew up in a joint family. So what that means is my dad's brothers and their wives and their kids lived with us. My uh-huh. mom, her sisters and their kids lived with us. My house was never empty, pretty much as people came and then they would make enough money and move on on their own. So meals were always a huge production. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. It's always a production. The women would all start cooking around like four or five. You you know, us youngsters would start off just peeling like green beans or prepping veg and then slowly made our way to the stove. Sure. Um, Yeah. But safety. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. Um, but it was always like a big part of every day was like, oh yeah, 4 p.m. It's start to it's time to get cooking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you were involved from a pretty early age. I think I read that even when you were like three years old, your mom was sort of giving you roti dough and letting yeah. you roll your own shapes, right? Yeah, like yeah. you were maybe struggling a little bit to <laughs> roll them yeah. as she wanted. Yeah, I call them baby roti, and they'd okay. be like very small and oblong and like all different shapes. They were never round. Right. I mean, they're still not round, to be honest. <laughs> um, but like 
that's how my mom would kind of get me out of her hair. Yeah. Um, and now my mom does that to my daughter when she stays with her. <laughs> Occupy her with yeah. food tasks. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you're, we're going to get to this, but you're a baker. Mm-hmm. Um, primarily you cook a lot, but you're, you bake a lot as well. And that's the focus of your cookbook. What role did sort of sweets play in your life when you were growing up? And I think I've read too that you sort of had a, uh, just, um, sort of a pull between like the Indian sweets that you were eating and this like American sweets that you were seeing some of your peers yeah. maybe having. Yeah. I love dessert. Uh-huh. It's just like, I have a huge sweet tooth and my family, uh, uncle of mine used to own like a Seven Eleven, uh-huh. So he would always bring me candy yeah. <laughs> when I was little. Um, I had uncles that owned Dunkin' Donuts, so they would bring me donuts. It was like sure. a, just desserts in general, always forever in the house. Yeah. But I would watch TV on like Saturday mornings and I'd see like the Nestle ads and uh-huh. the, you know, Duncan Hines and Sarah Lee. And like, it would always be like the grandma or the mom making something with the kids on stools and they're like, you know, baking cookies or right. mixing brownie mix and right. licking the spatula. And I, I always wanted to have that experience, but I knew I would never get it. Cause like people don't really bake in India. Ovens were not very common uh-huh. um, in homes when my parents grew up there. So there weren't really many baked goods that my parents are going to make with me. Right. You were enjoying other types of yeah. sweets. Lots of Indian desserts. Like I would want a cake for my birthday and my mom would make like a massive, um, cedar, which is like a semolina rice, uh, sorry, not rice, a semolina, um, pudding, uh-huh. which yes. is basically like plain semolina that's toasted with some ghee and put in a simple sugar syrup sure. with some saffron. And it's, very simple. And my mom would just make a giant plate of it and stick a candle in it. Uh-huh. And that was like happy birthday. And I wanted like fun fatty. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You felt that pull. Mm-hmm. Um, and then fast forwarding a little bit, you, you go to college, you go to the university of the sciences in Philadelphia and you're studying biochemistry at this point. You're not thinking that food is a career. Um, but you, at that time start to bake mm-hmm. a little bit more, right? In college, mm-hmm. what sort of yeah. drew you to that? Was it just the ability that you, you had an oven and could bake? Well, that was part of it. But the other part was my orgo professor told me if you can bake, you can pass orgo lab. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah. And I what's can, orgo? Uh, organic chemistry. Organic chemistry. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I started, started with box cake mixes. They uh-huh. were like a dollar per box. So right. it's like nice cheap college, you know, budget. Um, and then I started experimenting with kind of utilizing everything from scratch and then messing with ingredients. And it was kind of fun. Um, and the other part was my parents lost their jobs when I was a freshman Okay, during, it was like pretty much deep in recession at the time. So, uh-huh. um, and my parents work in the diamond industry, so it just wasn't doing very well. Sure. So I was the first person to ever go to college in my family. Okay. And their option was come home and work at like a retail store mm-hmm. um, and help us with the house. Or you could stay there, but pay for yourself. Uh-huh. Um, and if you have extra money, send it back home. Sure. So I started baking and selling desserts and plates of food out of my dorm room to help cover my stay. So you had an oven in your dorm room. Mm-hmm. And so you were baking yeah. and selling like to peers, other mm-hmm. college students. Oh, yeah. Other college students. 
Um, I actually started a periodic table of brownie. Um, <laughs> That's <bake> amazing. Sale, <laughs> which my college still does to this day. Really? Yeah. How does that, can you explain that to us? How does that work? <laughs> so I have like, you know, the metals are like peanut butter brownies and then uh-huh. like the halogens were, um, like vegan brownies. So each different category was a different type of brownie. And then I'd take icing and I'd set them all up to look like the periodic table. And then I would get some icing and write the actual, um, abbreviations on each one of them and sell them. <laughs> so you, they looked like the actual element yeah, labels. I, I yeah. mean, we had a full table that I like covered in foil because <laughs> again, I was like, I don't know what's a food safe product. So right. I covered it in foil right. and would lay it all out and sell it. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. So you're, you're baking a lot then in college, yeah. oh, both, yeah. both for fun and then ultimately to pay for your tuition and mm-hmm. to pay for cost of living, et cetera. Um, but at that point, you're still sort of focused on getting your degree in biochemistry and you graduate and you start working in biochemistry. You're still not really pursuing food in any significant no. professional way. Mm-mm. Is that right? No, I never thought it was an option. Yeah. I mean, growing up, uh, especially with um, Asian parents in general, the options are healthcare, engineering, mm-hmm. or business. Uh-huh. And... I can understand why my parents wanted that for me because they want stability and that's something they never had financial stability. Right. But the idea of pursuing something creative or pursuing something, um, that you're passionate in is just not something you do. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, all right, well, I guess I could always keep it a side hustle and just do it on the side. Sure. And at the time I was content with that. And so you're working as as a chemist, is that right? Yeah. In, this health, in, in the healthcare industry, to you, how long are you sort of working post college yeah. before you make the leap to food, uh, which we'll okay. come to? I worked um, for about five years. Okay. I went from working as an analytical chemist doing like pharmacokinetic kind of research. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> which was very complicated to working as a analyst um, in like the business aspect of healthcare and doing healthcare consulting, which is what brought me out to San Francisco from the East coast. And I hated it so much. (laughs) Yeah. You dreaded it. Oh my God. And did you turn to food baking at that time? And that's also sort of, so you moved to San Francisco away from your family. And Mm -hmm. I think that's also sort of when you started connecting with your mom over Mm -hmm. video conferencing, right. To sort of learn recipes and how she would make things so that you could recreate them here all the way across the country. Is that right? Yeah. The first year my mom sent me a big box for Diwali filled with sweets, Uh um, ladoos and like bagels (laughs) (laughs) and just all, all the stuff. And then, um, afterwards I just called my mom and be like, mom, I'm really craving gulab jamun. Like, how do I make this? Can you walk me through this? Um, and she was just, would tell me I'd, I'd have to physically show her cause there's no like measurements in Indian cooking. Right. It's like, you know, one finger length of ginger and like a fistful of rice. And right. Um, I'd have to be like, mom, is this right? Like, did I, I'd have to physically video chat with her. Sure. Um, 
because there was no way it was going to get written down and I'm, I was not going to be able to get it, do, do it right. Right. Through the whole process, you just sort of have her on video yep. coaching you and telling you if it was right. Yeah. I like hover my laptop over the stove and I'm like, <laughs> is this right? Is this the right color and consistency? And right. She's like, now add some water or whatever, you know, right. yelling right. at me in the background. <laughs> yeah. So you're sort of doing that on the side mm-hmm. after work, sort yeah. of turning to food and, and cooking. Yeah. And, video conferencing with your mom to do so. Um, and then you have this moment where you decide to quit your job mm-hmm. in order to go on to reality TV. Yeah. <laughs> pursuing food. Right. As one does. Yes. Right. What is, what does that <laughs> moment sort of look like? How do you reach that decision? What is the process that sort of led up to that? Yeah. So I was working for a healthcare, um, consulting company that I was just very unhappy with the, like, not very diverse. Wouldn't mm-hmm. give me time off for my wedding because they couldn't understand like a Hindu wedding's more than a day. Right. Um, yeah. And I was just like so frustrated. Yeah. Um, being there, and I would bake a lot just to get my mind off, it, and I'd bring it to the office. And then it got to the point where like directors or managers would be like, "Hey, can you bake for like this client or whatever uh-huh. over this event?" And I would, and I just my husband saw that I was unhappy. Um, and he's just like quit. And I'd never been in a position since I was a freshman to have any financial backing. There was no like mommy and daddy will cover my rent or sure. like, you know, so- someone will t- like, there was never a backup. It was all on me. And this was the first time that I had someone that was willing to kind of take care of me while I pursued something I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and it took about like six months of him convincing me. Cause he could see I was very, very unhappy. Yeah. Um, and my fear was what if I'm not good enough? Uh, what if I don't, what if I think I am okay, but in reality, in comparison, I'm just average. Sure. Um, cause your friends and family are always going to tell you your food tastes good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so then he was the one that came with the idea with master chef. Okay. So he's like, try out, see how it goes. If you don't get on or if it doesn't go well, go to a startup, go somewhere where you have more flexibility and you can maybe don't like have more time to pursue baking. Right. Um, and take it flow. Right. So you, you were sort of afraid of the financial idea of like leaving your job to pursue food, but, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, sort of also terrified that it might not work yeah, and that it might be for nothing. Right. At this point, had you launched your blog? I did. So I started writing my blog when I was a freshman in okay. college. So you'd been food blogging on yeah. the side as well. Yeah. Um, and you try out then for Master Chef. You're chosen, obviously. Yeah. What was that moment like? If I mean, was that like instant validation of feeling like maybe I am good? Maybe I am great? No, I went no? the opposite. I was like, oh, I'm the token vegetarian. That's why I got uh, on. Yeah. Because they need a vegetarian and I'm here. Yeah. And you're a lifelong vegetarian? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, during the audition, they bring the top hundred, um, contestants that they're like, in, or people that they're interested in to Burbank. Uh-huh. Um, and you're there for a couple of days before they tell you if you've made it on the show. Sure. And you, what are you doing? Yeah. Like trial things during that? Okay. They're like, oh yeah, we're going to, you know, take you to the kitchen and yeah. you'll have like an hour to make whatever you want or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and I baked every time I made, uh, French macaroons, okay. uh, macarons, um, from memory from scratch. Well, everyone else had these like beautiful composed dishes of like 
three different sauces and a meat and a veg. And I'm like, right. cool. I just put three like cookies on a plate and was like, here you go. <laughs> right. Um, I'm like, there's no way I'm making it. Um, but basically everyone had a doppelganger there. So there's like one pinup girl and there's another pinup person. There was like one interesting, you know, rocker dude. And there was another rocker dude. And I'm like, so where's my other vegetarian? Right. And that kept, was like a casting decision. Yeah. I was like, yeah, options. clearly. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. There were definitely like personas that they had picked. Right. And they could not find my doppelganger. Um, and I'm like, I don't see the vegetarian. And then I was like, okay, I guess I'm like going to be the vegetarian entertainment, I guess. Uh-huh. Cause there's always one every season. Right. Um, yeah. So I still wasn't as confident as I like wanted to be. Yet. Sure. Yeah. yeah. What was it like then? So you, you, it wasn't sort of a moment when you were chosen of feeling like totally validated. What was the, like going into the actual competition then? Um, I was so scared. I'm like pretty much the first meat challenge I'm going to go. Like yeah. I, that's what I was seeing in my head. Sure. Um, and I think when I, and I'll be honest, I should have definitely gone home during my, like my first meat challenge. It was a Salisbury steak and I didn't even know what a Salisbury steak was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I should have gone home. And you're not, I mean, you're, you're being expected to make these yeah. meat things, but you're not tasting them no, either. No. So you're tasting components, but you're not tasting yeah. the meat. Yeah. Uh, and before you serve it. Mm-hmm. So you can't really even verify for yourself whether it's delicious. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I started getting more confident um, into the show when I like a, I think the beef Wellington challenge is like my big one. Cause uh-huh. I, I, I made the best beef Wellington uh-huh. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I can do this. Yeah. I can do this. Right. <laughs> right. And that kind of like hyped me up a little bit. Cause I was like that my fear was, one people always love to like kind of crap on the vegetarian, especially uh-huh. on like Twitter and social media. Like they always do it. And I had a slight fear that was going to happen, but because I was doing so well at all the meat challenges, I'm like, they can't say anything to me. Sure. Right. Like they can't be that upset. I'm, yeah. I'm kicking butt in these meat challenges. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of like my little, like kind of, I got a little bit of confidence. Um, Definitely hearing what Christina Tosi and, you know, Gordon Ramsay and Graham Elliott had to say about my food. Yeah. I mean, what we see on TV is like literally what, like 30 seconds of a, right. We have at least 10 to 15 minutes up there of the judging process. Of the judging process. And I would ask like, what could I have done better? Is there something that you would have added? Is there something missing from the dish? I mean, I was fully like asking questions because one, I'm so used to, Indian cooking. I was not used to the composed plate as is defined by American standards, uh-huh. which is like, you know, meat, veg. Sure. Um, I'm used to, you know, a Gujarati dish, which is like 15 different things. For sure. Yes. Um, so I was trying to understand how plates of food and how dishes and recipes are kind of composed and made. And like, what are your, what are the thought processes? So it's behind it. So I kind of went in and learned a lot yeah, and gained more confidence as I got bigger and somewhat better. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. You were really capitalizing on the yeah. learning opportunity of being part of the yeah. show and having that exposure to yeah. the judges. Yeah. I mean, they have a palate that, I mean, they've eaten some of the best food in the world, I'm sure. And if I can get a little bit of 
you know, feedback, advice, if they actually really love something, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. That's kind of awesome. All right. right. <laughs> that felt validating to some yeah. extent. Yeah, yeah. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. So what did you learn about yourself and how you relate to food and cooking as part of that experience? Um, what I learned is, you know, like people have scent memories and like they'll smell mm-hmm. something and be somewhere right away. Right. I have like food kind of flavor memories. Okay. Uh, what I noticed is like, it doesn't have to be in that exact form, but if the flavors and the moments are there, I get, sure. I'm, I'm right back there in that spot, whether it be at like my aunt's house during a big dinner or a birthday party. Is there like an example, a particular flavor that brings yeah, you somewhere? For sure. Um, so when I was little, my grandmother would come pick me up from school and you remember those, um, like double popsicles. They're like two sticks oh, yeah. and you can, like, you can break crack, them. Break yeah. Them in half. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So my grandma would bring one of those and she'd snap it in half and she'd give one to me and we'd walk home eating popsicles. Uh-huh. Um, and then as she got older, she moved back to India and she would, uh, get something called mango dolly, which is basically like a orange sickle, orange cream sickle, but sure. it's mango flavored. Right. So that mango and cream flavor together, it just brings you right back there with yeah. my grandma chilling on the stoop, uh-huh. hiding from our parents, like my parents. <laughs> yeah. So that they wouldn't know that we both got ice cream because we both would get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's just that, or like Bista Kulfi ice cream is like waiting outside Patel Brothers in Edison on a hot day, uh-huh. um, being annoyed that my mom's taking forever to like pick groceries. Yeah. Uh, while I sit there and try to eat it as fast as I can without it like melting all over me. Sure. Um, there's definitely those, or like baby showers with jalebi. Like, uh, is a tradition to have jalebi during like baby showers uh-huh. and just like remembering like, Oh yeah, when my cousin, you know, they had their party and big, big trays of jellybeans or fresh jellybeans coming out of the oven. It's so great. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Hetel Vasavada, author of Milk and Cardamom. But first, I recently caught up with James Rich, author of Apple, Recipes from the Orchard, to hear more about the backstory of his apple-focused cookbook and some of his favorite baking recipes. I grew up in a place called Somerset, which is in the southwest of England, and it's uh, very famous for having apple orchards, which we make into hard cider. So yeah, I grew up around all of that. My family have a cider farm where we press apples and make juice. The family cider farm has been running for about 70 years now, gone through a number of generations. Of course, James's exposure to apples throughout his childhood and his family's history with the fruit pushed him to consider a book on apples. So the book, I wanted to write the book for two reasons. One was to kind of celebrate my family and and where I come from. And the other was to really look at the versatility of the fruit. And this is a fruit that we have, you know, has been there from from the dawn of time, really. um, And it's something that we're very familiar with. Yet a lot of people don't understand the um, amazing complexity to the flavour and and the amazing number of different ways that we can use it within our food. And obviously a big part of that is baking and um, um, I don't know about you, but I love an apple cake, a spiced apple cake. It's absolutely delicious. And it's something that, you know, when fall comes around, I am really kind of um, looking forward to. So um, I wanted to explore a number of different types of bakes in the kind of the sweet section of the book. Obviously, we've got things like apple pie and the apple crumble um, in there, but also some different different flavors, flavor combinations. Um, so I did some kind of more traditional flavors. So things like um, sweet toffee 
coffee. So I've made like a toffee apple um, cake in there. But then also I've added, um, worked with flavors like rose and uh, raspberry and coconut and things like that in the bakes in the book. So um, yeah, the baking was, it was interesting. I'm more of a kind of savory cook when I think of myself as a, as a cook, but um, I really enjoyed the baking because uh, it's, it's somewhat of a science and I get quite obsessive over it. But one of the bigger challenges that James faced when writing a book on apples was how to tackle iconic classics like the apple pie. It was actually a real challenge for me and I was very nervous about it, if I'm honest, um, because uh, when I, I first got the commission to write the book, um, I talked specifically about apple pie and apple crumble, which is which is very big in, in the UK. And um, I was saying, you know, everybody has their own their own idea of what of what an apple pie should be and um, they have their own recipes and it's things that they really love and you know they've been baking for a long time so how can I like add a recipe into this book and, and the publisher's like oh you should have you know work your own spin on it have a go and, and, and definitely include something um, on apple pie so um, what I did is I did some a bit of research and I um, spoke to some of my friends in America and asked them what their um what their recipes were they weren't overly forthcoming and sharing their secret family recipes for the pie and um you know which varieties they use and which spices they prefer um but i managed to kind of glean some insight from them and then i also did some research um and found a recipe that they use or did use in the obama white house um for um the apple pie that they serve there which apparently um michelle and, michelle and barack are um are big fans of um and i found the the yeah the combination of varieties and also um one thing that really interested me was the use of hazelnuts within the crust um that they that they use uh, within their pie so i looked at incorporating that um and i think the key thing for apple pie in my opinion and i'm very happy to be challenged on this um <laughs> is uh at the using different varieties within the filling so you get different textures so you have um, some varieties, some sharp varieties that uh, melt into a beautifully gooey, sweet um, sauce, and then other varieties that provide the kind of stay intact when you bake them. So th- they kind of provide you with that layering effect. Um, so I think that's super important. And then getting a lovely kind of crisp, nutty um, crust as well is, is, is another important factor. In addition to learning various apple pie approaches, James says producing the cookbook also reminded him about the significance of the apple in our culture. I learned quite a lot through this um, this process. I think the most interesting thing for me really was that kind of history behind it all. Um, I'm looking at um, certainly like the icon- iconography of the apple and looking, you know, when you start looking at just this one single fruit that I think is probably done more for... Uh, more than any other kind of fruit or vegetable in terms of you know uh, cropping up in uh, you know mythology in Greeks and in the Romans and uh, religion obviously we're more than familiar with the, um, the book of Genesis um, and things like that I think it was just fascinating to see where this fruit kind of crops up all over the place and obviously technology as well um, we don't need we don't need to mention the name <laughs> of the uh, the uh, technology giant with the with the same name so yeah Now, maybe you're already an Apple fan, and chances are you have a favorite variety, one of probably a handful that you see at your local grocery store. But James is quick to point out that there are thousands and thousands of Apple varieties that can range dramatically in flavor and culinary uses. 
in the US as well as in the UK, there are about kind of like six to 10 varieties that we get on every supermarket shelf. Um, it's the same type of varieties, the Galas and the Rayburns and, you know, the Red Delicious. Um, but actually there are, you know, seven to 8,000 varieties grown globally. Um, and so we're missing out on a huge, huge um, proportion of, of, of flavor profiling, really, and, and textures within our food. Um, in the US, I think you grow about kind of four and a half thousand different varieties. So you have a huge number that you can that you can um, that you can learn about and use use in the kitchen. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it's a real shame that we don't see more. I think it's getting better with farmers markets, and I think people are getting more inquisitive and, and asking more of like their farmers markets and their growers and supermarkets. Um, but yeah, it's great to go out there and explore all the different varieties because yeah, it's abundant. And do you use whole hazelnuts? ground up or how do you incorporate them into the dough so i make a hazelnut flour so i just um i very finely um whiz them in the machine um and then i incorporate it in, into the flour um that i then i make for the dough um with some spices so some cinnamon and with some seven or eight thousand apple varieties james estimates that he's only tried perhaps 80 to 100 but he's chock full of good uses for them like some of his favorite recipes that he shared with us I do a recipe for baked apples and I do a salted caramel sauce and add crushed nuts um, into uh, onto them and bake them in the oven. Um, and that just creates just this beautifully um, uh, warm and, and uh, warm, gooey apple sauce um, with this salted caramel, um, salted caramel sauce and then nuts on top as well. I'm loving that at the moment. Um, the cakes wise, I think my favorite is probably um, there's a cardamom and poppy seed, uh, an apple cake in the book which was something that i tested um a couple of years ago and uh everybody seems to really really love the 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 spice kind of flavor of the cardamom um and the poppy seeds go really well together um with the apple and also there is a pecan date and apple um and coffee cake in there which um at the moment a few people have messaged me and said they've been baking and they are really loving That's James Rich joining us to talk about his debut cookbook, Apple, Recipes from the Orchard. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostra and Alison Roman to This Week, Baking Week, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish exclusive and delicious recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, host incredible live shows, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today to support our effort to bring you top-notch cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Bay Area listeners, join us to celebrate the 2019 Baking Week at Salt and Spine this Sunday, December 15th at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco for our annual Cookie Swap. Last year, we had over a thousand cookies being exchanged by some of our listeners, and this year we're upping the fun with a live podcast recording with the stars of the La Cocina Cookbook. Plus, we have baking demos from former guests Maria Ziska and Baking Week guest Petal Vasavada. If you love cookies, you won't want to miss it. Find out more at Civic Kitchen SF. And we hope to see you there. And now back to our conversation with Hetel Vasavada, author of Milk and Cardamom. So also, then you're, you're eliminated from MasterChef. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, just, we'll skip to this part. <laughs> and you decide at that point that like you're going to make a career of yeah. food mm-hmm. and you're going to 
pursue this. When did you decide you were going to write a cookbook? I wanted to do a cookbook pretty much as soon as I came off MasterChef. I was like, okay, this is something I want to do. It's some, it's flavors that haven't really at that time been out in the world or like Indian desserts don't really get as much props as they should, should to be honest. Um, and I knew I wanted to do something for a while, but I couldn't do anything because again, I was under MasterChef's contract for three years. Okay. And, uh, I couldn't do a book because it would compete with the winner's book. Sure. Which by the way is great. Um, <laughs> Claudia's, uh, cookbook. She's an amazing chef. Yeah. Um, they also take a cut of any money you make. Um, in three years. Yeah. Within yeah. three years. So I was like, I'm going to hold on to this until my time is right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I just worked, uh, consulting and doing recipe development and food photography for a bunch of startups in the Bay area. Uh-huh. Um, and just kind of started there. I also just started really focusing on my blog and my social media to keep the followers that I got from MasterChef and also grow because at that time there wasn't a lot too much focus on social media. Sure. It's like a personal branding but I, I wanted to make sure that I like did something with those 15 seconds of fame that I got. Right. Um, cause a lot of people do go back to their old jobs and a lot of people, you know, post master chef or post reality TV, go back to what they were doing because they don't know how to get to the next step. Yeah. And I was like, Nope, not going to happen. I'm going to stay in food. And I was very lucky. My husband was super patient with me while I figured it out. Sure. Um, and then eventually brands started reaching out to me to help them create content for their own websites. Yeah. And it also helps being in San Francisco. Yeah. True. It was a huge factor, I think, in me being able to get to a space where I could write a cookbook. Yeah. Because yeah. you had, because the opportunity was here. Yeah. To yeah. do the freelance work and mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah. So how do you sort of approach the recipes in the book? Because there's sort of a, a mixture of sort of classic Indian sweets, but also a lot of recipes that sort of play on American flavors and yeah. sort of bridge the two. I mean, there's like, you have French macarons that are mango lassi flavored mm-hmm. um, with ginger chai chocolate. And so you sort of bridge that gap um, between classic Indian yeah. sweets and American flavors. How did, what's that process like for you? For me, how I started was I made a huge list of all the Indian desserts I know. And then all the like American desserts I love. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, where are the places where they meet? Um, for example, I have like a ginger chai, uh, creme that you mentioned. So I think chocolate and chai is a, a, a very, very like common fusion kind of flavor. Sure. And I, and I really love that creaminess and that lushness. Cause one of the things I love about chai, especially the way my grandma makes it, which is you simmer it a couple times. So there's like this thick creamy foam that kind of develops on top. Okay. Um, and there, it's supposed to be like really thick and luscious. I, the, nothing is worse than when jai is made with like thin, like skim milk. Yeah. <laughs> right. You right. Want, like a thick, thick, like luscious milk. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to, I was like, Oh yeah, that would really flow well with a put of creme or, mm-hmm. um, I have a, Oh God. Oh, a sesame creme brulee. Yeah. So it's, so we have something called dill jiki, which is a sesame, um, brittle. Okay. Sure. So it's just like, Oh yeah, it's usually very thin. Okay. And, and it just 
snaps and it's like, it's like the top of a creme brulee. Like that would work well together. Um, and I just kind of make kind of connections very, very much like I'd see it in my head, like rain man, like, (laughs) Oh yeah, this goes and this goes and this goes. (laughs) Right. That that makes it sound like it all came so easily and (laughs) naturally. (laughs) Oh, I had so many fails. So many fails. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Um, but yeah, these, I just wanted to create something that looked approachable and familiar, but had, um, Indian flavors. And again, would take me back to my childhood and hopefully any, you know, first generation Indian American to yeah. like a moment in their childhood. Yeah. Yeah. And you sort of talk about that, like you sort of bridging that gap between your Indian heritage and American twists and yeah. tastes and sort of having a realization that you weren't alone in that, right? Like yeah. that there's a lot of Indian Americans in particular of your generation who are sort of um, relating to that and sort of grew up in similar culinary yeah. contexts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think with po- like, it's definitely proven with the popularity, like Indian ish from Priya Krishna. Mm-hmm. Um, and just seeing so many uh, Indian fusion kind of restaurants popping up too. But I never realized that like people would relate to these things. I was just like, Oh, I guess it just maybe would relate to someone just from Jersey. Okay. Just like, you know, Oh yeah. Indian person that grew up in Jersey probably went to Patel brothers, probably went to this temple too and had the same dessert I had. Right. But what I saw is like on a bigger scale, um, that people just had these memories. I had someone email me, um, they made the gulab jamun bundt cake from my book. And she's like, my mom would make gulab jamun, um, during the holidays and I would uh-huh. smell them. My mom passed away recently and I made the cake and my, it made my house smell exactly the same yeah. as when my mom used to make them at home. Yeah. And like, it just dawned on like, wow, there's so many people that I think it also makes sense because desserts in general have a huge role in Indian culture. You always have something sweet during every big moment in your life. Sure. Um, weddings, it's a part of the ceremony to feed each other sweets. Uh-huh. Um, when there's a baby born, you give boxes of desserts to your, you know, friends and family. Like it's a big thing. Diwali. So everyone kind of grew up with the concept of having some sort of dessert or the typical desserts that we grew up with in, in America, which is like Rasmalai, Gulab Jamun, um, maybe the, the cashew barfi. Uh-huh which is very popular <laughs> yes, <laughs> or anything that stays well once transported from India. Sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's a couple in there that like people might not be familiar with because they're not something you would probably bring them over. And many people probably won't attempt to make it at home. Right. Like there's um, a crepe cake in there that's like made with a crepe that's made with rice flour. And um, usually it's filled with like jaggery. Uh huh. And that's, definitely like a street food in india sure but i doubt parents made that for their kids here in yeah the US. not something you're recreating often and and then yeah. you make it into a cake yeah to yeah. sort of adapt it in mm-hmm. your own way mm-hmm. i think i read that there was some initial resistance to from your publisher to some mm-hmm. of the recipes in the book is that right yeah they were there or the was, focus yeah the focus and because i think they thought it was gonna be straight just indian desserts and like no fusion. Uh-huh. Um, and I think they were also like kind of hesitant about like the use of a lot of 
specialty ingredients, quote unquote, like, um, jaggery and, sure. you know, uh, milk powder. And they're like, well, are these things easy to find? I'm like, Amazon exists now. Right. Like, and milk powder doesn't yeah. even feel like yeah. you would have to use Amazon for it. Right. Yeah. That's I mean, super common these yeah. days. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely get messages and like, where do I get milk powder? I'm like, it's like baking aisle. It'll right. Be there. Grocery store. Yeah. And like, I know it's not a Safe common way. thing anyone buys anymore, but it's a very big part of Indian desserts. Yeah. Um, I'm like, it's there. I know you've probably never searched for it. So you don't think it is, but it's there. Yeah. Um, but there was definitely a little like, are people going to be into this? Are people going to, um, will it reach a wider audience beyond just the Desi or Indian diaspora? Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and how did you feel about that resistance? Um, honestly, I've been shopping the book around for a while at that point and, I, I did try to get a book agent and no one would really take me on Okay, because they believe it was just too niche. Okay. Um, and I was at that point I had heard it all and I was like over it and I was like, all right. And I basically told them like, listen, they're very good about giving me the freedom to just write the recipes and they'll let me know what they think after. And once they like got the final manuscript, they're like, Oh, we get it. And I like, like, this is not, fully Indian. Like I'm like, no, it's fusion and you know, a little bit different, but common enough that people might find it approachable. Right. And they completely changed kind of their mindset. Yeah. That's so interesting. So you mentioned, um, Indianish by Priya Krishna. Um, I'm wondering if there are other cookbooks or cookbook authors that have been really important to you in your career. Um, Nick Sharma's book season. Mm -hmm. That was a big one. Um, also another sort of fusion book, I guess, yeah. to continue the use of that term. Yeah, yeah. And I love that he went into his regional go in cuisine as well. Um, I think regional Indian food in general, people don't really know about or think about the Indian food is just Indian food, right? Like no one's like, Oh yeah, that's from Gujarat and that's Punjabi. And you know, right. regional cuisine is a thing. And, uh-huh. um, no one's really explored that. And I, I was very, you know, encouraged by, um, Nick's book to kind of also show a little bit of Gujarati regional desserts right? Um, in the book. Um, obviously, Mother Jaffrey, who's sure. like the queen of Indian cookbook yes. writing. And mm-hmm. um, Manit Johan, first Indian chef I ever saw. Or, okay. Like, there's a, a bunch of kind of like Indian writers and, I guess, chefs that like inspired me to kind of keep going and pushing and like, you know, no, let's not call it you know, turmeric milk panna cotta. Let's just call it Haldurna. That's what it is. Right. You know, and push for the actual name, like, um, pre-gen a couple of her, um, recipes and saying yeah. the Nick. So like, I, did you feel that when you were working on your own book that you have to name things in a way that appeals to a Western audience, perhaps? I did. Yeah. Um, initially they, like the publisher, I was like, can you create a separate name for these? And, um, I was like, no. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm like, can you put it in parentheses underneath it? I'm fine with that. Yeah, right. But the title is a title. Sure. And eventually they were just like, yeah, forget it. Just call it what it is. You're explaining it in your header anyway. <laughs> right, right. Um, but it, there was definitely like, maybe I should call it something that like people will understand or know mm-hmm. or like, or won't have trouble pronouncing. Maybe they won't make it if they like just look at it and don't know what it is. Sure. Um, yeah. But I'm definitely like, uh, I want to call it what it is. Uh, Right. 
I think like the words like curry, like a lot of the times, like we'll have something called bateka nushak, which is literally like a potato curry, but it's not really a curry. Okay. Like, <laughs> uh, but the, it, I'd rather just call it what it is than try to translate it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then describe the dish. Like it's, you know, potatoes cooked in turmeric and cumin, da, 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 like a dry roast. Sure. And do it that way. Yeah. Well, we always end with a little game, okay. so I thought we would borrow MasterChef theme. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Again, um, which actually suits our cards quite well. So the cards are next to you. They're they're labeled based on what they okay. are. Um, but I thought we'd do a couple rounds, and we're going to pretend that a MasterChef judge is coming to your house for dinner. So you're catering to that specific judge's right. um, tastes, perhaps. Um, and so you can draw from each of the piles and to see what ingredients you have to work with and okay. tell us what you might make. So let's start with Gordon Ramsay, of course. Okay. He's coming over for dinner mm-hmm. and you, um, have these ingredients to work with. Oh, okay. <laughs> so tell us what you have. I have chickpea, passion fruit, cloves, and beets. Oh, okay. Interesting. All right. So, fun fact, Gordon Ramsay's very familiar with Indian cuisine. Okay. Um, he told me that his landlord was Indian, um, and Gujarati when he was younger. Okay. Um, and so you try food from him. So what I'd probably do a simple chickpea curry with cloves in it. Okay. Um, and then the passion fruit I'd make into a chutney. So strain it, uh, add some black salt, some chili powder. Uh huh. And turn it into like a thin chutney. Okay. And the beets I'd shred and just toss in some lime juice. That's what they do in India. Sure. In lime juice. Yeah. Yeah. Just like Delicious. a little side salad situation. Yeah. Delicious. Yeah. I think Gordon would love it. <laughs> um, okay. How about Graham Elliot? He's coming for dinner. What do we have to work with? Garlic and corn. Okay. Okay. That's not too bad. What do we have? Chicken, kumquat, garlic, and corn. Okay. Okay, so I'd probably roast the corn in some garlic um, and butter, and then cook the chicken on a cast iron. Add some sliced kumquat into the butter oil or in the butter that I'm, and then baste that chicken with it. Okay, and then maybe add some ginger to that. So you have like a ginger citrus chicken situation uh-huh. with some like garlicky corn, I guess. Sure. On the side. Maybe sure. some like Szechuan pepper to kind of keep with the Asian theme. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that. That sounds really delicious. Kumquat ginger yeah. chicken. Delicious. Yeah. Um, okay. Last but not least, Christina Tosi is coming to your house for dinner. Okay. <laughs> what do we have um, to work with? Tofu. Fish sauce, lemon, and carrot. Okay. Okay. I have an idea. Okay. So what if it was silken tofu uh-huh. that you blend down? To make like a like a silken tofu pudding with limes, uh, lemon zest, okay, candied carrots on top, and then make uh, like a fish sauce caramel. Oh, interesting! Yeah, fish sauce yeah. caramel, just right on, on top of it, and like yeah, just a little drizzle, drizzled on top. So you yeah. have like salty, tangy, sweet from the candied carrots, right? Right, a little texture crunch. Uh, yeah. uh, that sounds delicious. <laughs> I like that. Maybe some toasted milk powder mixed in too. To start. For her, especially. <laughs> yes, yes. She, she uses a lot of milk powder in her she desserts. Does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this was so much fun. Thank you so yeah. much, Hannah, for joining us. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content and recipes from all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. 
Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can leave us a rating or join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Salt and Spine is proud to have storytelling partners like Edible San Francisco. In the latest issue, hear from three women, Lenora Estrada of Three Babes Bake Shop, Janelle St. Jean of Pietisserie, and Elizabeth Simon of Revenge Pies on how they're speaking out on behalf of minority and women-owned businesses, building up their operations, and paying it forward to their communities. Subscribe now to ensure you don't miss compelling stories on how San Francisco eats at ediblesanfrancisco.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonmo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Greetings Adventurers is an award-winning comedy real play D&D podcast that has been running for a decade with 427 episodes in our first campaign. I didn't have back problems or kids when we started. My favorite thing about the show is that it's a group of friends playing D&D who don't take anything too seriously. Right, like would a normal group use a sphere of annihilation as a toilet? We threw so much mayonnaise in there. We just started a new campaign, so it's a great time to jump in. Or you can listen to our first level one all the way to level 20 adventure and have hundreds of hours of entertainment. New episodes every Monday, so listen to Greetings Adventurers on ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.